you may have heard of called the status quo bias that was developed by behavioral economists Samuelson and Zeckhauser, which basically proves that, which is that we tend to overvalue what we already have. Even when we're presented with an alternative that's empirically better, we tend to sort of say, well, I've got this thing already. I think it's probably fine. So we as change makers need to overcome both our own status quo bias, but also if we're going to be trying to advocate for change, we can recognize that it's going to be hard because most people are hardwired to kind of maintain the status quo to keep things the way they are. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Hey, welcome to the show. This is the only show on the planet that unabashedly proclaims from the rooftops that practical love belongs in the leadership space to create business impact and results. Glad you are here. Thanks for joining this global movement now spread across 160 countries. So we got a loaded episode for you, okay? Later in the show, I'm gonna be speaking with Alex Budak, faculty member at UC Berkeley, and author of the new book, Becoming a Changemaker. But first, I welcome in my co-host, global speaker and coach and author of three books, including his latest, Move the Needle, and also my good friend, Rob Holman. What's up, Rob? Marcel, get ready for some passion, enthusiasm, and a bit of inspiration. No, it's great to be back with you. And uh, we've had a lot going on since we last spoke, so I'm excited about today. How's your Thanksgiving? Oh. Man, let's just picture this for a moment, shall we? The home at home, we were the host home for Thanksgiving. Uh, we were anticipating, eagerly anticipating, 20 family members, young to old alike, all excited. But then my mom, my stepdad, my dad, and my stepmom, the four of them, came down with COVID. And oh. not, not at our gathering prior, so they couldn't make it. So it was kind of like, oh, didn't feel uh, the same as though if they were around. However, we still maximize the time with the 16 we had, talking about activities, good food, great conversation. We certainly had it, but there was something missing my parents. Oh man, so sorry to hear that. Yeah, they're well, doing okay we, though. They're doing okay. Good, good. We have a tradition in in uh, in Thanksgiving is we uh, we look around the community and uh you know and our church for those those Thanksgiving orphans, you know, the people that don't actually have families to go to and then we bring them into our family for a meal. And uh, so we had uh, four or five people that came um, that, you know, the single moms and, and retired people, they just don't, didn't have a place to go. So, yeah, we love that. We just open up our, uh, open up our doors for, for, for people like that and, uh, and just kind of extend the family out. And, it, and we, you know, have great conversations with people from varied backgrounds uh, when that happens. So it's really, really cool thing to do. Or so that is cool. And it speaks to something of like, you know, setting the table, you know, when we set the table, open doors, open hearts, and you and your wife and your family certainly have opened the doors to people that, um, you know, there might be closed doors otherwise, or no place to go. And yeah. I can only imagine not just having a good meal, but their heart uh, being cared for, uh, you know, being present with them. It shouts to them that they matter. Yeah. And if there's one thing that people need in this world, leaders need in this world, any human being needs in this world, it's to know that they matter. 
That's great. That's great. So, Rob, I had in mind uh, bringing in the, into the conversation a, a leadership topic. And for our listeners, again, we do this to help you grow as a leader. And one of these one of these leadership traits that I had in mind for discussion, it, it we find when it's displayed in full view, um, it creates uncommon loyalty and trust amongst you know peers and coworkers, and it creates great cultures. But it's one of those traits that is seen as a weakness, okay? So let me set this up like this. We know that leaders need to have confidence, right? We're, we're all attracted to confidence in great leaders. And, but yet, you know, if you take one wrong turn in displaying confidence, it becomes overconfidence. And then people look at you as, okay, as arrogant. So, Here's where the leadership trait that I want to talk about enters the picture, humility. Okay, so humility is often misunderstood in the context of, of leadership, right? But I read a book, uh, the, the seminal um, Good to Great by the great Jim Collins, uh, who's done the research on uh, level five leadership and, you know, back in his research when he was writing Good to Great, he basically said that the best leaders direct their ego away from themselves to the larger goal of leading their company to greatness. And these leaders, as Collins determined in the study, they they gain a an edge through displaying both, he calls it, fierce professional will and extreme humility, personal humility. So, Quite the paradox, kind of like servant leadership, right? Paradox, right? It's a paradoxical mix that is really hard to find these days. But with Collins' research, you know, he he followed around all these companies that people with those with that mix of of fierce professional will and personal humility they created superb results. So I don't know who it was. Somebody said I can't remember if it was uh, Rick Warren or John Maxwell. Uh, but they said humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So in essence, humble leaders, um, they they achieve greatness without arrogance, plain and simple. They, you know, they shift from ego to humility, which can drastically alter the outcome to their advantage. What are your thoughts on humility? Well, I think it's a it's a wonderful topic you bring up because I think in our culture, um, not just in America, but America, business culture, and really world culture at large. There, and I wanted to highlight this and emphasize a point that you brought up. We can tend to think of humility as a weakness. Yeah. And I think we need to redefine a little bit of humility. It's almost like I love, um, I associate humility with meekness. Um, <laughs> meekness certainly is not weakness. If you think of meekness for a moment, weakness or meekness is understanding who you are, uh, your identity to such a degree that, um, you begin to fade away and others begin to come more to the forefront. It, it's almost as though Marcel, when you begin to look at yourself in the mirror, you don't see your image anymore. You actually see your sphere of influence and how you can best serve them. So for me, if we understand that, um, you know, humility is more like meekness and we're anchored in who we are, there's no need to 
uh, showcase our talents above and beyond what we should or what's healthy to get the limelight or whatever. It's actually, if we're given a platform, how can we elevate others even above ourselves? And I know that's been a huge part of your message throughout the years and a huge part of love and action and, um, and your message, which I love. Yeah, and I love that. That kind of segues to one of the things I want to talk about is let's make, let's make this practical for our listeners. Okay, so let's talk about some ways that um, humility leads to successful business outcomes. And you mentioned like you know being less being less visible and amplifying other people, sort of being more in the background. Uh, I love that because that speaks to uh, humility humble leaders uh, give other people credit rather than taking credit for themselves. So you mentioned the limelight, right? So the way I see it is that too many, too many leaders, um, they hunger for the spotlight. Whereas humble leaders, they deflect the spotlight away from them and allow their teams and their subordinates to be in the spotlight. And I'm telling you that has an immense power when it comes to like gaining trust and respect as a leader, there's something also very liberating for employees when they receive credit because too too often leaders take the credit and don't give credit to their to their employees. Don't give them the spotlight. I couldn't agree more. And I think, um, you know, if you look at that, I, I remember having a couple companies in my mid 20s again years ago. This might age me a little bit more, Sal, but a few years back in my mid 20s, a couple companies, uh, family owned businesses that we had. And I was the leader, the senior leader of two of these companies. And I remember in my mid 20s, I wanted to prove myself. I, and I was doing everything to make sure my name was in the paper. I, I was doing, I was jostling for position. I, to be straight up with you, I was manipulating certain situations so that people would know who I was. Yeah. And then my world came crashing down a little bit. And you, you know how it is. You, you have certain things, circumstances that aren't to our favor. And it all of a sudden, it's like, I guess I'm not as important as I think I am or I want to be. And it was in that moment, in that time, where I shrunk from about six foot four with a wingspan of about six foot seven down to about four, four two really fast, not in my physical stature as much as in my own heart. Mm. And that was a humble reality check for me of like, you know what? I guess this life and leadership is not as much about me. Yeah. It's about others. Yeah, that's great, Rob. One of the uh, one of the things that I I find in humble leaders that creates impact. I wonder if you could speak to this. Is that they listen to understand first? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, the average person, I man, oh man, can I just I just want to say straight up, the average person, the average leader stinks at listening. I think in part because we have so much in our heart that we want to share. We think people need to hear. Yeah. To follow us, to be a part of the bigger vision, <clears throat> excuse me, vision, sharing that vision. But I think we can really um, serve people and serve people well and really shine a light on them when we learn how to be more effective listeners or active listeners. And I think very practically, one thing that's helped me, Marcel, and I want to know what's helped you. But one thing that's really helped me practically in the midst of that journey, and I'm on journey like the rest of us, is making sure even if I have things to share that I discipline myself enough in the midst of conversation to hold back. 
Yeah. And to really be intentional with listening, trying to hear what the other person's saying. So for me, that looks like it can look like a couple of different things. Number one, summarizing w- once in a while what the other, what I believe the other person is saying. Another thing could be mirroring once in a while, every so often, what I believe the person is saying. Whether it's mirroring or summarizing, it really values the other person that their voice is being heard, or at least attempting to be heard. In the midst of that, then we can truly have a conversation that's not one-sided. And so that's something, those are a couple of things that I actually do. And I have to be very intentional, and very consistent with it because by default, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, if we look at politicians, if we look at a lot of leaders and C-suite members and businesses, non and for profit, we just want to chime in to prove our point or to yeah. make sure that we're heard to get people in line with where we are and where we ultimately want to be. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love it. Um, I I often coach leaders um the idea of what what I call park your thoughts. And parking your thoughts comes from the imago therapy model, which basically is this. It's because you, you said that sometimes we have thoughts swirling in our heads that we're already forming a rebuttal um, or, you know, or we want to get in our, get our word in before that person is done talking, which means that we've already stopped listening to that person uh, because we're forming thoughts in our head about how to respond. Okay. So in parking your thoughts, what I coach leaders on is basically you just put everything in park. It's almost like mindfulness or, you know, we, we talk about how to be more mindful and being present in the moment. Well, same thing applies here is being mindful in your listening so that your complete focus is on one thing only. It's that the person speaking. So you park your thoughts, you, um, um, you, uh, you know, calm down your emotions, your, whatever is going on in your head, you have to get to that, that rest state where you just put it in park and then you listen. And the intent here is to listen for meaning and understanding to really know what's happening on the other side of the fence, right? Rather than having an agenda that, oh, I'm, I, I, I have a, I have an answer for this person, or I just have a disagreement with what he's saying, which then takes you away from no longer, you're, you're no longer parking. You just put it in drive again, right? So keep it in park, your thoughts in park and listen for meaning and understanding what the other person's needs in mind. Exactly what you just said. It's sort of a servant leader's way of listening, right? The, the listening has one MO. How can I help this other person? So that's when you elevate listening to a whole new stratosphere. Boy, yeah. I love. I think I'm going to adopt that real quick. I love that framework. I love that methodology there. And and two, I want to encourage people as we've been encouraged in this way too. If we want to see it happen more within our sphere of influence, namely uh, in our place of business and our professional lives with leading our team, how about start on the home front? How hmm. about practice? these things with the people that are closest to you. Perhaps your partner, your spouse, your children, your nieces and nephews. And if we can begin to discipline ourselves and be intentional and consistent more on the home front, imagine what just begins to happen more naturally when you enter into the workplace and workspace. It's going to be, there's going to be an ease to it. And so that's why I'm just a firm believer of like, Hey, your your servant leadership is going to be as good in the workplace 
as it is in the home. Mm. And you and I have talked about that, Marcel, before. And yeah. I think that's something we'll continue a conversation about for sure. Yeah. Isn't it funny? that you, The concepts that you and I teach are meant for the business world. Um, but I always get people coming to me, my my coaching clients say, oh, wow, this is something that I actually apply to my marriage, to my partnership, to my parenting, right? Yeah. They're, they're universal truths. And the bottom line is we take ourselves with us wherever we go, yeah. regardless of the titles and the responsibilities and the tasks at hand, which is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, it is. I want one more way that humble leaders um, can create impact in organizations. Okay. This one. Uh, wondering what you feel about this because uh, so many leaders think they have all the answers, right? And so they forget to ask questions and be curious and learn. And so humble leaders are teachable. So here's what I've witnessed in leaders in in really healthy um, people-centered organizations. They they gladly accept the role of learners, right? Because they know that it's going to make them better. So they they know that each person Regardless of where they sit in the org chart, it could be one of your subordinates. Each person has something important to teach them. And, you know, Rob, truth is, I mean, good leaders don't always know what is needed and what to do all, all the time, right? <laughs> Speaking of imposter syndrome, but, and so what, to, to remove the mask that kind of keeps you hiding and, 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 you know, thinking that you, you've already got it all figured out, ask questions. And be interested in the answers, whoever you're talking to, right? So, and this is even important if you're a new manager, if I'm speaking to you now, uh, you may have long-tenured employees that that you inherited that no more than you do. That's a fact, right? A lot of knowledge workers may know more than their managers do. So, as a new manager, you know, it might start with being honest enough to say, hey, you know, help me so I can help you. What, what do you know here that you can teach me so I can help you become better yourself? Right. So that's what I, I thought humble leaders and what I've seen. And, and, and the, the evidence backs this up is that humble leaders are, are teachable. What would it look like if every leader was committed with every one-on-one -on -one meeting that they have with a team member, with their posture entering into that one-to-one -one meeting, not what I can give them, but what can I receive from that team member as it relates to what can I really learn from them today? Yeah. Whether it's about them or it's about the, their, their next creative idea. And if we can enter into that space uh, more of that student's heart, that learner's heart. Can you only imagine what begins to come out of that one, those one-to-one -one meetings? I mean, the depth of connection, first and foremost, but then also the shared vision. And I want to highlight the word shared. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's where a lot of magic happens, Marcel. So I appreciate yeah. you highlighting what you did. Yeah, well, thanks for that. I think what you said uh, would lend to creating more leaders if when you share your leadership, your insights, your ideas, it elevates the leadership of others around you as well. So, all right. We got a new tradition, Rob. We're starting today. Mailbag. Um, we're going to go to the mailbag. And uh, the mailbag is basically, um, I, I get a lot of people on LinkedIn, you do too, that probably ask you questions or they send you emails and uh, with questions 
And I just thought, well, hello. I mean, why not just bring this to the podcast? Um, you know, because we're we're answering questions. Uh, sometimes I, I I take time, um, you know, to just give back to pay it forward and um, and answer questions. So I thought, well, let's just do this here on the show. So if you're interested in um, in asking us questions, Rob and I. We'll, we'll take all your all your questions uh, for future episodes. I'm going to put that in my show notes. There will be a link to uh, to the mailbag, and you can you can you know put your question there. And uh, with your permission, we can we'll, we'll ask you if it's if it's okay to to mention your name and where you're where you're writing in from, and then we'll gladly answer the question. So this one comes from Chester in Iowa, and Chester writes, Marcel, I have a team of ten. And I'm having a tough time motivating them to do good work. I talk to them. I have one-on-ones with them. But it's like pulling teeth sometimes. What am I missing? You want to take a crack at that one? Boy, Marcel, I figured you would take all the hard ones. My goodness. No, I would love to. I'm starting to sweat if you can't tell already on the on our video anyway. I know a lot of people are going to be listening to this. But I would say this. Make a commitment to yourself and your team members to get to know them each time you meet with them more personally than professionally. And we could best do that by the sharing of stories. You know, and how I like to um, characterize that is what's one life milestone that have helped shape you to become the person you are today? So in other words, you can enter into that personal space. It doesn't have to be weird or awkward because I know so many leaders, the temptation, and by default, is for us to head into the problem that we're trying to solve together is the next creative idea or the project at hand or the goals and the outcomes in the professional world. Yeah. But if we truly want to learn what it means to go from motivation to inspiration, that's a place that starts more on the inside and works itself out. And I have found storytelling, sharing an exchange of personal storytelling really scratches people right where they itch. Marcel, how about you, though? There's, you know, I don't want to take anything away because that's such a beautiful illustration that to take motivation uh, and turn it into inspiration. And that comes straight out of your inside out leadership model. And uh, and so I'm, I'm just going to add to what you said is is to not see this whole thing about managing people as a transaction. Because what I'm reading between the lines uh, with Chester and Iowa, Chester, if you're listening, okay, uh, we're speaking from our heart to yours, okay? Don't look at your position as a tr- as a kind of a, 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 you know, one transaction after another throughout the day. That's just going to suck the life and the energy out of your people, right? They want relationships. And I, I, I would venture to say that most of them probably don't know you as a person, Chester. And and so so speaking to what Rob is saying, how to inspire, storytelling, share your life with them, Chester, and get to know them on a personal level. Don't make managing employees just about a transactional, you know, relationship. Now, that brings no value. So those are my thoughts, Rob. Oh my goodness. I, microphone drop moment right there. Marcel Schwantes. That's all I got to say. I can, I can leave and be a happy man for the next month. All right. He is Rob Holman and he's going to be joining me as my co-host for several uh, episodes uh, in the future. And Rob, Hey, I want to 
maybe give you a little plug. Um, share a little bit about the inside out leadership model since I've already dropped it a few times and then how people can get a hold of you. Yeah, appreciate it. Always great to be with you as always. Uh, you and I tag team quite nicely uh, and we have so much in common personally and professionally, Marcel. So the joy and the honor is all mine, my friend, for sure. Um, I would say this, much and most of uh, leadership done throughout the world uh, is done with a you know good heart, uh, good motives of the heart, um, but it's done a little bit more from the outside, tactics and strategies, trying to change a team member, trying to change the team as a whole. A little bit more of the carrot and stick method of like, come here, come here, you can do this, you can, and not saying it's bad, it's better than nothing, but it, it really, it reaps a little bit more of like immediate or short-term gain, but doesn't have the vibrancy and long-term sustainability that many leaders are really looking for. They deeply, deeply desire. So in steps, inside out leadership, which is basically what would it look like for you as a leader to look into the heart, to look into the creative mind of your people one at a time. And that let that be the starting place. And then in that place of, of inspiration, uh, all of a sudden things just begin to happen. People are compelled to productivity, compelled to greater movement. But it starts with you and it starts with me as the leader first. The more that we understand how we're inspired, our personal purpose, our personal mission on this planet, it can then begin to work itself out to the team members within your greater sphere of influence. So that's a little bit of a taste of inside out leadership as opposed to outside trying to get in. And if people want to find out a little bit more about that and my work, they can just go to my website, which is robholman.com. I will be speaking with Alex Budak next, right after a quick word. And Rob, I'll see you next time. You bet. Sounds great. See you, Marcel. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You know, I got this leadership development course out right now, and it's getting fantastic reviews. So I want to tell you a little bit about it because it might be for you. It's called From Boss to Leader, and it teaches emerging leaders and managers those servant leadership skills, the, the everyday stuff that you need to inspire, engage, and motivate your team for high performance, you know, to get bottom line results. Now, we're not just taking anyone for this course. We want to make sure that you're truly invested in your growth as a servant leader. So if you'd like to explore whether this, this experience is really for you or your team of managers, visit my website right now, marcelschwantes.com, and click on training. You know, one of the false beliefs that many people have is that they aren't wired to lead. You know that they don't have the the personality type or or maybe even you know there's this this notion that to be in a leadership role you have to be at the top of your organization right that you got to sit up there high in the org chart or maybe have fancy titles with words like chief something or head of something in it and you know same goes for people that um aspire to dream of creating positive change in the world, right? We look up to these crazy successful entrepreneurs and founders of billion dollar companies and we think, I, I can never be them. I'm not smart enough, creative enough. I don't have the funds, the resources. I don't know the right people. So that discourages us from pursuing our passion, our purpose, because you know we, we just don't believe that we can be a change maker. Well, you know, that's just plain false. 
anyone can lead and create change in the world. I mean, anyone from wherever you sit in your place of work, in, in your community, whatever your age, race, socioeconomic status, but it does take effort. And it's also going to take the right mindset and a set of tools and behaviors for you to get there. And that's why I'm thrilled to bring on a show today, Alex Budak, faculty member at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. There, Alex created and teaches this amazing course called Becoming a Changemaker. That class has been transforming the lives of his students as they go on to per pursue purpose-driven careers. Well, Alex has taken all of his research and case studies and all of his teachings at Berkeley and written a book by the same name, Becoming a Changemaker, an actionable, inclusive guide to leading positive change at any level. <laughs> this is going to be an inspiring show and one that uh, I believe is gonna be full of hope and possibilities for you. We're, we're gonna find out how people from all walks of life have led positive change and what changemaker leadership looks like in action. So, you know, folks, we all have the ability to be a changemaker. And we're gonna do we're gonna show you how to do it on this episode. So Alex Budak is a social entrepreneur. And as I mentioned, he's on the faculty at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. He teaches, speaks, consults, and advises organizations around the world with the mission of helping people from all walks of life become change makers. That's his passion, that's his pursuit, his calling. He's a graduate of Georgetown University and UCLA. Go Bruins! He loves spending time with his two favorite change makers, his wife, Rebecca, and their baby son. Alex now joins us. Alex, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Hey, Marcel, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, this is going to be fun, and uh, I, I, can, I can only imagine how impactful this is going to be because I know, I personally know people that fall short of of pursuing their, their life's calling because of all those reasons I mentioned in, in the introduction. So this is going to be very, very inspiring. All right, we have a kickoff question that uh, we get our listeners to kind of get acquainted with you. You ready? Let's do it. What's your story? <laughs> I guess my story is grounded in a moment that I absolutely love. So the moment that I live for is this moment where people realize I can be a change maker, where that mm -hmm. light bulb goes off. And, you know, sometimes it happens very quickly. Sometimes it takes a while. But as I look back through my whole story, my whole career, it's really been about activating that inner change maker inside of folks. So as you mentioned, you know, I've worn a few different hats. I grew up in the Silicon Valley Bay area. So always sort of surrounded by entrepreneurship, but never really found my calling until I learned about the concept of social entrepreneurship. That's using the tools of entrepreneurship, but to solve social challenges. And there I saw that there's change makers literally all around the world, but there's too many barriers getting in the way. It's informed by some of my travels in India, speaking with change makers who inspired me. And that launched me into my sort of first career, which was as a social entrepreneur. Yeah. From yeah, there, I realized. Um, yeah, go ahead. And there I realized that, you know, that's one amazing way to make change, but the world calls for more people than that. So as life happens, fell in love with a woman. Uh, we were living in Washington, D.C. She got a job offer in Stockholm, Sweden, of all places, and decided to 
we'd only been dating for about a year, decided to move with her. So moved over to Sweden and then uh, fortunately it paid off and we're now married, happily married. Um, but in making that move, decided to sort of broaden my perspective. And I began running an incubator for social entrepreneurs, coaching them, supporting them, mentoring them. And again, igniting that inner change maker in them. Then after about three years in Sweden, moved back to the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm from and through some good fortune, ended up at UC Berkeley Haas. And that's where I realized that, you know, true to my mission, I'm still helping change makers, but I also realized that at my core, I'm a teacher. That's what makes me come alive. And a bit like that Steve Jobs uh, commencement address where it only makes sense looking backwards. There, I realized that everything I've been doing, despite wearing different hats, like an entrepreneur, an intrapreneur, an executive, et cetera, is always a teacher. And so now I feel like I just come alive in the classroom with this opportunity to get to teach. So I'm a social entrepreneur, I'm a change maker, I'm a writer, but at my core, I'm a teacher and I just love it. Yeah. So let's bring the, the the class into the conversation. So before the book, there is the class. And and so I'm 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 really curious about the story behind this course that you teach, right? And uh, by the way, folks, this is one of Berkeley's, can I say it's Berkeley's most popular course? Is there any course that's more more popular than yours right now, Alex? <laughs> we, we, we call it among the most popular. We do have Robert Reich, who's uh, in, from the Clinton administration. He teaches a very popular class as well. So I'll say just among is fine. Yeah, I like the fact that, uh, you know, your first day you're writing the book, you really didn't know what to expect. And you walked into the room and it was like standing room only like there's kids hanging from the chandeliers kind of thing, you know. So what's the story behind how that course evolved? I think you'll agree that in life and in leadership, there always is a lot of serendipity and a lot of good luck. And a number of things fell into place for me here. So I had initially joined Berkeley Haas to run their leadership center, which was a dream job, I thought, uh, except that the contract ran out. And there I was sort of three months left trying to figure out what's next because that role no longer existed. And so I went in to speak with a guy named Jay Stowski. He's the one that oversees basically all the faculty, all the curriculum at Berkeley Haas. And he's been kind of a mentor to me. So I went to him for advice on, you know, what should I do next? And I think he could tell that my heart wasn't really in it. And I'll always remember what he said. He said, but Alex, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, what I really want to do is teach. And then, you know, imposter syndrome popped up and I started making excuses for all the reasons I probably couldn't teach. But to my surprise, he said, well, what do you want to teach? And in that moment it became crystal clear. I said, I want to teach becoming a change maker. And he said, all right, put together a syllabus, show it to me and we'll go from there. And so I remember shaking his hand, literally leaping out of my seat because I was so thrilled someone else saw this possibility, walked out of his office, closed the door, and immediately pulled out my phone and Googled how to create a syllabus because I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. Uh, but that started the journey. So about a year or so to make the class. And then as he said, yeah, I walked in on that first day. We often hear what it's like. You probably remember as a student, your first day of class. We don't really hear what it's like for the faculty side. So, you know, walking in brand new university, brand new faculty member, brand new class. Because again, most faculty usually inherit a class. They don't create a new class. So I walk into the classroom, unsure what to find. And as you mentioned, yeah, every seat was filled. The aisles were filled. The windowsills were filled. And it became so clear to me that this was my opportunity. This was the moment that people were hungry to become change makers. And this was mm. my chance to now serve them. And, and it's funny because these are students. So uh, what, what intrigues me about this is uh, I didn't think that to today's students, so maybe at Berkeley is different, um, but that, that students, 19, 20, 21 year olds, um, even have have the the awareness to know that they they want to become change makers. Because, you know, you might have kids that are, just a chip off the old block that are going to follow in the footsteps of daddy, who's a doctor, a lawyer, a police officer, whatever. But the fact that it was it, 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 on the first day of class in a new um, in a new curriculum, 
that it was like full to capacity. So that really intrigues me. It was super moving to see it. And while, you know, Berkeley is special, I don't think that it's unique to Berkeley. I think that there's something among Gen Z um, mm. and among others, this um, idea that we want our lives to be about something more. You know, there's a role for making a paycheck and that matters. But I think we're hungry for more than that. And the data proved that out, you know, looking at 70% of Gen Z, they want to work for a company that shares their values. I mean, there's an opportunity here to create the next generation of purpose-driven leaders. And that lights me up. Yeah, that's great. It's perfectly suited for you, Alex, in teaching this concept. So let's play with the word change maker a little bit. Okay. Uh, different definitions for it in your own words. How, how would you define a change maker? So I take a radically inclusive lens to how I think about change maker. And so I define it simply as someone who leads positive change from wherever they are. So as you said in your brilliant intro, it's not about roles or titles. I believe that an entry-level product manager has just as much claim to that title as a Nobel Prize winner. I think it's so crucial that you're able to lead change from wherever you may be. And then on top of that, I think it's an inclusive identity because we can layer it on top of our other existing ones. So you can be a changemaker lawyer, a changemaker doctor, a changemaker artist, a changemaker musician, a changemaker parent. It's something we can bring into all facets of our life. It's a lens for understanding the world around us and how we can shape it. Yeah, yeah. Alex, so what's interesting about this book is that I, I felt like I was in your class because, well, the the framework for the for the book is like you teach the course. It's in three parts, right? So walk us through just skimming the the kind of the, the three parts, what those three parts are before we dive in. What are they? So there's three parts and they all fit together. You can kind of think of it as like a pyramid. So the base, we begin with a change maker mindset. That's your way of understanding the world around you. And these are some traits and concepts that I found in my research that all successful change makers share, irrespective of roles or of sector. So these are ways of sort of showing up in the world and our set of attitudes or beliefs. So that's like the foundation of the pyramid. The next level is change maker leadership. I believe that change making is a team sport. And so you're going to do your most important work through and with others. And so here we start talking about, well, what does leadership actually look like today? Let's get rid of some of those old fashioned notions of leadership. And let's talk about what the most effective change makers do, you know, trends like influencing without authority. So that's the second level of the pyramid. And then the third is change maker action. And that's where the first two fit together. And we say, okay, how do you take those crucial but often scary first steps? How do you turn ideas into action? And how do you bring others along with you on the way? And so they all fit together, mindset, leadership, action, to give you the toolkit you need to go lead positive change. Yeah, that's great. So, folks, uh, I'm telling you right now that this, I know that, uh, you know, this might be information for you, but don't treat it as such because we have an educator here for one of the top schools in the country, if not the world. So treat what we're going to, do for the next several minutes as a way to really transform yourselves and become a change maker. And so it all starts with the change maker mindset. So Alex, what is the change maker mindset? I mean, can anybody achieve this mindset? Yeah, absolutely. And the data bears it out. So hopefully some of your listeners are excited about this and you say, yeah, maybe I'm starting to see myself as a change maker. But you may also have some people here, fair enough, that are hearing this and going, Alex sounds nice, you know, but sounds kind of fuzzy. Um, well, I get it. So I come from a university grounded in empirical research and data. So I've created something called the Changemaker Index. It's the first ever longitudinal study looking at how changemakers develop over time. 
And by the way, if your listeners want to take the index for themselves, uh, you can go to changemakerbook.com slash index, and you can take the survey and sort of see what your greatest strength as a changemaker is. Perfect. But I went into it just with curiosity, just trying to answer the question, you know, can people develop as changemakers? And I'm happy to say that the answer is except exceedingly clear. Absolutely. Yes. But then we can also start picking apart some of the data to understand, well, what are the things that the most effective change makers do? And so it's grounded in some actual data. So we've got the data side of things, but maybe to answer your question, I know you also like to bring in sort of art and music and poetry. So let me bring some poetry. Um, I love the words of poet Amanda Gorman. She delivered the poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of Biden and Harris. And I think her final three lines of this poem are a perfect embodiment of a changemaker mindset. So she says, for there is always light if we're brave enough to see it and if we're brave enough to be it. For there's always light. This idea that tomorrow can be better than today. We don't have to pretend like the world is perfect. We are facing real systemic challenges, but tomorrow can still be better. We can play a role in making sure that it is. We can be the people that illuminate that path forward. For there's always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. Sometimes being a change maker requires having vision to identify a status quo that needs to be disrupted or a system that needs to be challenged. Um, maybe you don't have exactly the answers, but you can at least identify sort of where things are headed, see trends and see opportunities where others may only see threats or problems. And then that third part is if only we're brave enough to be it. Change making takes courage. And I deeply value that courage in folks because it's scary to stand up and say, hey, I think this is a change worth pursuing. And especially so if you say, look, I don't know exactly the path forward, but I do know that it's worth working on. Come along with me. Let's do this. And so it does take courage for there's always light if only we're brave enough to see it and only we're brave enough to be it. I picked out a few things for us to kind of just dive on, dive in and really dissect. And one of the, you already kind of alluded to it is, is, is um, uh, one of the traits of, of a change maker mindset is questioning the status quo. What, what does that look like? Really? I mean, as far as like, you know, how, how do you do it? What's well, start with the story. Start with the story. So uh, in the book, I tell the story of Lila Oldren, who is someone whom you probably don't know, but you no doubt benefit from her insights. So this is back in the 1970s. She was working for the Swedish telecommunications agency, and they're trying to come up with the very first mobile phone. And at that time, it was actually a, a car phone, basically a phone in a car. And they were taking the existing paradigm, so you know the way that a phone works in your house or your office, and trying to translate that to the car, to a moving car. And what they found is that they kept running into the same issue again and again, that you would try to dial the numbers, but then as your car is moving, you're hitting shadows, you're hitting trees, you're hitting tunnels, and the call keeps dropping. They can't get the number to the signal on time. It keeps dropping. And the team started thinking, well, maybe this whole mobile telef telephony thing just isn't possible, which you know, sounds crazy now, but like that's where they were. Um, but Lila saw things a little bit differently. Uh, by the way, she brought in a unique perspective, only woman on an all-men team, but brought in her unique perspective, and she questioned the status quo. She said, look, we're trying to recreate exactly the same process we have in our homes in a car. Why are we doing that? We should think things differently. We should dial up our curiosity. So whereas in a phone at home where you're static, you know, you dial the numbers, and then they get sent off in a car, it doesn't work that way. But she realized that technology was just at the place where the transistors were just strong enough that you could store a few numbers 
at a time. So what they did is instead of sending one number off each time it was dialed, instead you would dial the seven, eight, 10, 12 numbers. It would be stored locally. And then once those numbers were there, then boom, it would send it to the radio tower. Again, it sounds like a simple insight now looking back 50 years later, but the time revolutionary, all because she was willing to shift that paradigm. Everyone was thinking one way, but she was willing to see things a slightly different way. That became the breakthrough that then led to our telephones today. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. That's a great example. And, and, uh, and I think that, uh, one of the, one of the key features of, of, of doing that, of stat, of, uh, questioning the status quo is courage. Um, and, and believing, and we're going right back to mindset. That's why we're doing this mindset thing is having to believe that something is not what it actually is. Cause sometimes we hang on to belief systems that, um, that are, are totally obsolete by now, right? The world is oh. keep changing and evolving and we're still hanging on to these, uh, the, the, the mindset of 30, 40, 50 years ago, like you, like you mentioned. 100%. And the social science, the data bears that out. So there's something you may have heard of called the status quo bias that was developed by behavioral economists Samuelson and Zeckhauser, which basically proves that, which is that we tend to overvalue what we already have, even when we're presented with an alternative that's empirically better, we tend to sort of say, well, I've got this thing already. I think it's probably fine. So we as change makers need to overcome both our own status quo bias, but also if we're going to be trying to advocate for change, we can recognize that it's going to be hard because most people are hardwired to kind of maintain the status quo to keep things the way they are. Yeah. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Seth Goldenberg, uh, author of Radical Curiosity on the show, and he's talking about curiosity is, is becoming extinct. We're not asking the right questions to what, like you said, to challenge around the status quo and ours and others, right? So talk a little bit about the role that curiosity plays in, in, uh, in questioning the status quo. Well, I take a vantage point now as a, a dad, as you mentioned. So I've got a wonderful two-year-old and I think it's wonderful to look at the world through the eyes of a two-year-old and see that sheer curiosity that they have as they try to build these mental models and try to understand the world around them. Um, to try to understand, in my case, you know, a cow is different from a dog. They're both animals, but they're not dogs, right? These like the wonderful curiosity questions as you like explore the world around you. And I think that as we become more mature, become adults, you know, we kind of lose sense of that childlike wonder. But it's actually a beautiful thing to be asking those questions about the world. When I was a advising social entrepreneurs, I used to have a practice, uh, which was asking the question, why a lot? Uh, my entrepreneurs often hated it. But the point is you help get to the deep root causes of what you're working on. It's so easy for us to say at like a surface level. So someone might say, look, I'm working on an after-school tutoring program. And I'd say, why? And they go, well, you know, kind of frustrated. Why would anyone question that? Uh, well, because, you know, I believe in educational equality. And they say, well, why does that matter? And you're going deeper and deeper and deeper. And you get to like the core of what you're actually doing. So I think asking why, being curious, um, then opens up these new avenues. Think about Lila Olgren. If she had just accepted the status quo and said, you know, that's the way that things are. Maybe, you know, maybe just a mobile phone isn't possible. And that would have been a perfectly reasonable assumption based on the data. But she was willing to sort of dial up that curiosity to think about things in a new way and to build some new mental models. Yeah, I love that. So curiosity. And then um, you also talked about another mindset trait being confidence without attitude. And I love that that you bring in humility as as one of the one of the traits of doing that so talk a little bit about how does humility play a role in having a a change maker mindset 
Oh, humility is one of my favorite things to teach, especially when I teach executive audiences at Berkeley, because of course, we're kind of skeptical that humility actually matters. Um, but the way I like to think about it is that as change makers, we need to hold multiple polarities at the same time. So I try to make the case in that chapter that we need to be confident and humble. We need to have the confidence to stand up and say, look, I've got an idea. It's worth following. It's worth pursuing but also the humility that makes people want to be part of your team to admit our own mistakes, our own failability and be inclusive. So others come along with you. But I think the mistake that a lot of leaders make is they try to be just a little bit confident and a little bit humble. But that leads us into this kind of messy middle ground where honestly, you're sort of neither. Instead, I think change makers are able to do both to be confident and at the same time, humble. In the book, I tell the story of Gwen Yu Wong, who's a terrific change maker. She's the founder and at the time CEO of a company called Tribeless. And they uh, have games and other opportunities to teach people about emotional intelligence. So from the outside looking in, you would say Gwen was on top of the world. She was on magazine covers. Her company's revenue was taking off. But internally, she had this feeling that things just weren't quite right. The company had grown rapidly. And she started looking around and she started realizing that she was no longer the leader that her company needed. She's kind of the visionary. She's the product person. But the company really needed someone who was an operations finance person. Now, most CEOs, I think, would just stick it out and say, look, I'm already the CEO. I'll figure it out. I'm the CEO. But she saw things a little bit differently. She realized that not only was she not going at her full potential, she wasn't serving the team in the best possible way. And so she made the decision and she tells me it was a hard decision, took months of conversations, but she decided to step back. She stepped back from the CEO role. She still stayed on the team. She took on the chief product officer role. Her co-founder stepped up to the CEO role. Um, and in telling that story, I love it because it's both. She had the confidence to found this company and actually the confidence to decide that she was no longer the right person to take this really hard decision, but also the humility to be in it for more than just herself, to say that this isn't about me as a leader and keeping that CEO title. It's about what's best for my company, for my organization, for my team. And as it turns out, that perfect combination of confidence and humility came in um, into effect at perfect timing because she stepped back in early 2020, just as the world was uh, shifting due to COVID and they needed to on a dime shift to a virtual distribution. And there she was well-suited to then be in her product officer role to change and to lead those changes forward. So I think we as change makers should balance both. It's not a little confident and a little humble. It's both. And it's confident and humble at the same yeah. time. And I think that's a great segue for another mindset trait and by the way, this one, I think Alex is going to knock out a lot of people because they might want to become change makers for the wrong reasons. And, and that is to go beyond yourself. So in essence, this is being able to serve. You mentioned it. So serve others. It's servant leadership, right? One of my favorite topics. So what would, what would be a good example of that? Mine too. Um, and I think, you know, going back to the classic Robert Greenleaf piece where he kind of introduced the concept of servant leadership, he says the first uh, defining factor is someone decides to serve first. You, you choose to serve as opposed to choosing to lead. And I think that's the mindset we need as change makers is not to say, well, I want to go be a CEO. I want to go be a leader, but rather I want to find a meaningful problem and I want to serve that community, whether it's your team or an organization or a community and say, hey, how could I be of help to you? 
And here I think of an example um, from the world of politics. This is Emily Cherniak, and she's the founder of an organization called New Politics. Now, if you were to look at a place, and this is not unique to just the US, but if you look at politics, I think you'd see many people who are not, let's say not servant leaders, you know, who are uh, seem to be ultimately in it for themselves, for their ego, for their own status, and so on. Um, Cherniak sees things a little bit differently. She believes in instead of focusing on policy, let's focus on people. Let's focus on driving servant leaders first. So her organization, New Politics, they recruit people who are servant leaders first. She recruits people who served in the military, served in Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, kind of those service academies. And they find people who are humbly and truly servant leaders. And then they train them in the tools of politics and policy. It's a nonprofit, bipartisan, um, apolitical organization, other than they believe that our political institutions need more servant leaders. And they have an amazing track record because they're choosing people who ultimately get into this work because they want to help and serve others. And they figure out the politics on top of that rather than the other way around. Right which is to look for career politicians who serve the, the special interest groups and the, when they're really not serving the people. So uh, I love that. Okay, another mindset trait is one that we really don't want to experience, but science says that, um, well, when it happens, it's meaningful and a catalyst for change, and that is failure, right? Nobody likes to fail, but you even inspire your own students to fail on purpose. Talk. Talk through that one. Well, my students are probably like a lot of your listeners that, you know, high achievers, and we get a lot of our, you know, quote, success by doing things the right way. And so I try to shift this paradigm. And so we spend an entire lecture uh, during the semester talking about the importance of failure. And so we do some case studies. We look at some research, some frameworks. And then towards the end of class, I put up a slide which just has two words. It simply says, go fail. And students kind of look around like, you know, what's going on? I put up the next slide and says, okay, you have 15 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom and you can't come back until you've been rejected. You have to ask for something and get someone to tell you no before you can come back. And I see my students kind of look around at each other nervously. Yeah. Uh, some of them tell me later that their hearts start beating faster because this idea <laughs> of going out and failing on purpose is so scary to them. But, you know, it's for a class. And they're good students. And so um, they nervously shuffle out of the classroom. I tell them, I'll be at the front of the classroom. You know, I'll, I'll mentor you. I'll coach you if you need some advice here. But yeah, I'm serious. 15 minutes, go out and fail. And they nervously leave. But then when they come back 15 minutes later, the energy is absolutely off the charts. So much so that I had a professor next door come over and ask us to keep the noise down. Because <laughs> students were so lit up from this experience. And we find that one of two things happens for students. About one third of students... They put themselves out there. They ask for something. They're sure they'll get rejected. And they get a yes. I think about one woman who went to the cafe and she said, hi, um, can I have a free orange juice? And to her shock, the barista said, yeah, okay. And then she sort of starts worrying herself like, wait, I'm supposed to be rejected. Um, okay, can I have two? I said, yeah, okay. Three? And fortunately he cut her off there, but she came back to the classroom with two orange juices. And we learn from stories like this that so often our first failure is that we don't even ask in the first place. We're so sure we'll be rejected that we don't actually ask for something that we may want. And that's a failure in and of itself. And then for the other about two thirds of students, they do get that rejection. They ask for something crazy. Uh, they get a no, but they come back. And rather than feeling defeated, they actually feel a 
boost of self-confidence. They're kind of proud of themselves for putting themselves out there. They realize that failure isn't fatal, that no one laughed at them. And they also feel like, well, hey, if I could ask for something silly like that, then imagine what I could do when I ask for something that I truly and deeply believe in. It reminds us of something called the failure paradox, which is that when we look at people whom we would deem successful on the outside, we often think, oh, wow, they've just succeeded a lot in life. But the data show that actually those who succeed the most also fail the most. That sometimes it's not about one stroke of genius, but rather having that willingness to keep go again and again and again, to persist in spite of failures and keep giving it a shot. Yeah, interesting that there's, I think there's research by uh, by Wayne Baker. He came on a show a while back um, that talks about how we, we fear failure, therefore we don't make the ask. And uh, according to the data, more people are actually willing to give or offer help um, if you only make the ask, but we don't make the ask because we fear of failure. So it's, there's a catch 22 there in our, in our minds that keeps us from doing that, keeps us from really keeps us stuck is what it is. It's exactly right. And that's one of the really cool insights students see is that they realize, oh, actually people really want to help me if I can. You know, I think about it was a rainy day and one student went up to another student uh, who had an umbrella and said, hey, my next class is about 15 minutes across campus. Would you be willing to walk me over to class so I don't get wet? And the student said, yeah. That student was willing to walk 30 minutes out of his way to make sure that this other student stayed dry, a complete stranger. And I think it's a great reminder that people are good and that we do want to help people. But sometimes it's hard to know exactly how we can best help unless someone asks. And that changes people's mindset, changes their perspective when they realize, oh, maybe people actually are there to support me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So once we acquire the mindset that that we need, we then transition to the change maker leadership. But before I make this transition, I, I, <laughs> is there any mindset trait that you feel our listeners need to know that we didn't cover? No, I think that was great. I think we covered a nice okay. selection of them, giving them plenty to think about. Thanks. All right. Awesome. Awesome. And you can always get the book to get the full the full spectrum of the mindset traits. Um, so now we. Uh, we got the mindset kind of part down a little bit. We need to lead like a change maker. So what would be a good starting point here? Well, I'll start our conversation the same way I start the change maker leadership portion of the book in my class. So I had the great privilege to run this leadership center at UC Berkeley. And that meant that part of my job was to reach out and talk with leaders whom I admire. And honestly, these are people that never would have ever emailed me back, except that I could say, hey, I'm based on a leadership center. Would you like to talk to me? And so I took advantage of that, you know, the failure paradox, putting myself out there and got to have these coffees with people whom I deeply, deeply admire. And in these conversations, I got to ask them a bit like you get to deal with this podcast, you know, questions about how do they develop their own leadership style? what I found is that the most common answer, probably 60, 65%, was that they had experienced bad leadership themselves, and they made a conscious decision to do something differently. And I love that way of thinking, because so many of us do experience bad leadership. Think about whether that's a bad boss you've had, a bad peer you've had, bad relationships. And there's, I think, often this thing that's like, well, I'll just replicate it. That's just how leadership is. But no, these are wonderful leaders who consciously decided to do things differently. So I began our change maker leadership module in class by getting students into groups, and they get to reflect on all the bad leadership that they've ever experienced and try to pull out those traits. You know, is it uh, arrogance, entitlement, ego, whatever that is? And then we see who can get the most. And normally the winning group has about 15 to 20 different traits. I have them then read off those traits to the uh, to the class. And then we snap along if we've experienced that ourselves. It turns into like the world's worst um, 
beatbox poem because it's like arrogant snap entitled snap but we see that like we experience so much as bad leadership and so i begin by saying look we've all experienced bad leadership we know what bad leadership feels like let's make the conscious decision here to do things differently to say i'm going to be a different type of leader i'm going to be a change maker leader yeah yeah so it's basically reinventing leadership is what you're 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 going through that thought experiment um so as you reinvent leadership one of the things that you talked about is uh, that, that a lot of people um they wait for permission and you're flipping the script you're saying no you have to lead without waiting for permission right so that's right and that's built on yeah. some of the terrific work done by Hermione Ibarra at University College of London um her terrific book act like a leader think like a leader where she says the paradigm we have is backwards that we so often think that we need to like sit in a room by ourselves read a bunch of leadership books decide this is the leadership style that I'll have and then go try it but she says no we need to have a bias towards action we need to start like stepping up and doing stuff and then of course be open to feedback be open to iterating but have that bias to actually starting that there's no replacement for actually doing the work for giving yourself permission to step up and to start leading yeah and then the other one is leading with your ears this is a this is so powerful to me because not enough people actually think of active listening um as as a as a way to to create change and action and move things forward but you're saying basically that change maker change making leaders uh have to have to listen but also they have to know what insightful and clarifying questions to ask in the listening right and uh so walk us through some examples what does that look like well, that's exactly right. And this really emerged as I began teaching MBAs and executives. So people with a bit more work experience, people that are kind of on that fast track in their career. And I was working with a number of folks who had pr been promoted in their organization, but they often get promoted based off of their skills as an individual contributor. So, you know, here in the Silicon Valley, a lot of people who are great coders and they do really good code and they find themselves, okay, you're a great coder. So therefore you're managing a team of five people. And they're like, well, I don't actually know how to manage. I don't know how to lead. I'm just a coder. And they come to me often stressed because they, they like, look, I have to figure out all these things. I'm now managing, I don't know, the HR function. How do I know how HR even works? And I tell them, well, you have two choices. Either you can go become an expert in all these things, right? So go figure out how HR works, how finance works, how operation works and so on. Or you could learn to ask really good questions, to listen more than you talk. And as you lead folks, as you manage folks, ask those powerful questions, ask the catalytic questions that open up new perspectives for them. But also you're uniquely suited as a leader to help see connections, to help people see, well, you know, this person's working on this. How does your work connect to that? Or how might there be synergies here? Um, you know, this goes back to the idea of curiosity in some ways, but, you know, asking powerful questions. Uh, journalist Kate Murray says that everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. If someone seems boring or dull, that's on you. And I love that as a challenge to say, how can I bring the best out of people through asking really powerful questions? Yeah, a couple of things that stick out for me in, in this little discussion. But folks, there's a lot more ways that you lead as a change maker that we, I mean, we could extend this conversation. But for the sake of time, stop waiting for permission to lead. So give yourself permission to lead, right? And uh, and then if you feel pressure that you have to have all the answers because, you know, you're getting bombarded with, hey, how do we do this? And and what's the way forward, et cetera? Focus on asking really great questions and just be, be insightful. I mean, you call it cat uh, what's the word? Uh, catalyt let's see, I can't even catalytic questions, right? Um, so uh, is, is there before we transition to now action? Is there any part of of uh, leading like a change maker that we should we should cover? 
I'll touch briefly on something that I call micro-leadership, which is, again, going into that idea of giving yourself permission. That, as you mentioned in your intro, I think we so often look at these like courageous, heroic leaders, and we say, well, if that's what leadership is, and I'm not naturally as charismatic or extroverted, does that mean I can't be a leader? But I think, no, absolutely not. I think that there's an opportunity for us to shift from thinking about leadership as a title to leadership as an act. And so micro-leadership, a new idea I put forward in the book, breaks leadership down into its smallest, most meaningful unit, which is simply a leadership moment. If you think about it, these moments appear before us dozens of times per day. It might be in a meeting where everyone else is saying no, that you find the courage to say yes. Or maybe it's um, seeing that one of your colleagues hasn't really spoken up in a meeting and you say, hey, you know, no pressure, no obligation, but haven't heard much from you. Would you like to share your perspective? And the world looks so different when instead of waiting for permission from others to say, okay, you're officially a leader now, instead you seize those leadership moments yourself. What we found is magical about microleadership is that you'll never go too far by seizing these individual microleadership moments. It's rooted in servant leadership, little ways of stepping up and serving others. But then when you look back and you go, hey, well, this week I did 15, 20 acts of microleadership, you sort of realize, hmm, actually I'm becoming a leader here. And that's a really powerful reframe for people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the guide so far, we have a guide that, that, gives you sort of an, uh, uh, a a roadmap for for your mindset you need first that's like you said it's the bottom of the pyramid right we need a foundation that's mindset and then we need to know how to lead like a change maker but to have real impact in the world we need action so that's the last part that you teach uh and the last part of the book as well so what what would be a good starting point with the action piece so Berkeley, of course, has one of the best math departments in the world, and I am the least qualified person to ever teach math at Berkeley. So I only have one single math equation in my class the entire time, and it's what I call the changemaker impact equation. And it's simply the sum of your mindset and your leadership, so that in parentheses, multiplied by your action. That's how you have impact as a change maker. And the reason we conceptualize like this is that it doesn't take a math PhD to know that when you multiply a number by zero, the result is zero. So that tells us that even if you have that mindset, even if you have that leadership, if you just sit on it and never do anything with it, you will never have any impact as a change maker. And so that's why impact uh, drives is driven by action. And that leads us into that third part, which is about how do you learn to take those challenging but crucial first steps? Yeah. So what would be some crucial first steps? Maybe lay out a, a quick strategy for it. nothing is quick. I mean, uh, you know, something that is sustainable, something that's going to keep us focused and accountable to creating change. Is there, a, is there a good strategy for that? So here's one of my favorite bits of research that came out in the last couple of years. It's by Italian researchers that were looking into um, Italian entrepreneurs. So they worked with an incubator, sort of a group that supports uh, early stage enterprises. And they had one simple intervention. They took half of the group and all they did was they taught them the scientific method. The other half had no intervention. What they found is that that group that had learned the scientific method, so again, that's like hypothesis testing and so on, that they were more likely to pivot, such so to make changes in direction, and generate almost 2x the revenue. So why is that? It's because when you see things as a scientist, it takes a sting out of failure. It allows you to iterate and be creative and be curious without taking that sort of personal blame yourself. Think about a scientist. 
scientist, she's sitting in a lab and she's, I don't know, titrating chemicals, whatever <laughs> scientists do. And the experiment doesn't go as she expects. She doesn't say, well, I'm a terrible scientist. No, she goes, okay, well, we learned something about it. Let's iterate and let's move from there. I think that's an important lesson that we as change makers can learn as well is to see our work as scientists. It's hard to do because when we are truly passionate about a change, we see a lot of our own selves, our own egos wrapped up in the work that we're doing. But if you can start sort of separating yourself and see things as a test, then a lot of really good insights can come. It's not easy to do, again, when it's so much of ourselves in it. But here's the truth. Anyone who's led change, they didn't know exactly what they were doing when they got started. They had an idea. They had a vision, maybe. They had no idea how to get there. As boxer Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? So as soon as you put your idea out there, you know it's going to change. And so let's think our, our action as scientists. Instead of thinking, I've got to sit in my room, get the perfect plan, and then go execute it. No, let's have a bias towards action. Let's put things out there. Let's iterate. Let's learn. Let's run hypotheses. Let's run tests and keep going forward. Yeah, yeah. Run the experiment, as they say. Um, okay, so Alex, in our during to becoming change makers, we should expect setbacks. We should, we talked about already fail failures. Uh, and there's going to be obstacles on our path. What would be some of them that we should be aware of? Well, one, and I think anyone that's led change has felt this, is the cynic, the person uh. who is not helping you when you come in and you try to lead change. And so the organization Nobel, that's N-O-B-L, has written a great paper called The Three Types of People You Meet While Leading Change. And those three types of people are the champions. So these are people that buy into your vision right off the bat. And they say, with these people, you know, delegate to them, get them involved, get them to feel a sense of ownership. Those are the champions. Then you got the fence sitters. Those are people that could kind of go one way or the other. They're not really sure. And they say, don't waste your time on the fence sitters because they'll come on board if you, if you can get enough people. It's tempting because we often say, well, I'd rather just try to convince those fence sitters. But they say, no, let's focus on the cynics. And so here, I love the way they define cynics. They say a cynic is often just a disappointed idealist. So maybe it's someone that's been part of change efforts in the past and they've failed, or someone who's had three different managers, all of which have said, oh, we have got all these plays, plans for change and nothing ever comes to fruition. And so they say with a cynic, really hear them out, try to understand where they're coming from. And when you start seeing them as a disappointed idealist, as opposed to just a negative person that's trying to block everything that you do, it shifts the way you think about it. Something I experienced myself with Start Some Good. So in the early days, we had a team of two non-technical co-founders and a very lean engineering team of two people. And we were going up against some of the biggest VC-backed players, you know, companies like Kickstarter, Indiegogo. And as the person sort of overseeing the tech team, I would get these emails from folks, from users. And I could not believe the vitriol that came into these emails because we didn't have a feature. You know, they were totally right. But my first response was to email them back and be really defensive and be like, yo, don't you understand? Like I have engineers working like five hours a week as opposed to like an engineering team. Like we can't possibly do this. But of course that isn't effective. What I learned is I saw them as disappointed idealists. I saw them as people who cared so deeply in our company, in our mission, in our product, that they took the time to write these 10 paragraph emails to me about a, a functionality that they wanted. And I realized, wow, they actually really care about this. And so, of course, our iteration cycles were not as fast as the VC-funded tech companies. But once we would launch and build that feature they requested, I'd email them back. I'd thank them for their advice. I'd say, hey, do you want to be a beta tester? Do you want to feel it out? And oftentimes, these cynics became our greatest champions, all because my framework on how I thought about them shifted from someone who was just a roadblock getting in the way and being negative to someone who actually believed in it, wanted to support us. They just were disappointed idealists. Mm -hmm. 
Alex, as we wind down here, is there any question that, uh, you know, that I didn't ask that our listeners absolutely need to know? This has been such a fun interview. I feel like you've captured the essence of my teaching, the essence of the book. So no, I think you, you, you brought the best out of this here. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I mean, you're, you have a brilliant mind and just the way you go about this is so, uh, I mean, the, the, the three parts to becoming a change maker, you know, some of these concepts I, I coach on and I teach, but when you bring it all together like this, that it, I can see how it can be transforming for people. So, uh, so I want to, I want to ask you a, uh, it's sort of a heartfelt question. All right. What's your ultimate hope for people reading this book? So I want them to have that magic moment where they realize, yeah, I can be a change maker. I write it from a place of humility, which is that I can't possibly know exactly what the world needs, exactly what changes the world needs. But I do fundamentally believe that each of us have that change maker inside of us. So I hope that you'll read it. I hope that you'll feel, first of all, you'll see a bit of yourself in there. There's 50 different case studies. So not every story will resonate with you, but I hope you'll see a bit of yourself in at least one of the characters and you'll see, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And that you'll give yourself that permission to step up and lead change because our companies, our communities and our world need you. Yeah. Well, we talked a lot about server leadership, probably not not long enough uh, on that topic as we are both passionate about it. But we have tradition on, here on the show where we bring in the love leadership question. So the the idea here is is to uh, to bring out something that is going to inspire people to lead through pra- practical love and care. And love is a very squishy word. Not it's so in, in this sense it's a it's a verb, not a feeling or an emotion. So in your own words, Alex, how do we lead with love as uh, as leaders day in and day out? So for me, it begins with empathy that I think you've got to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand where they're coming from. It's so easy, especially in our sort of digital hybrid uh, remote work to just sort of see people as their 2D representation on Zoom. Um, But I think to really lead with love is getting to know them as people, getting to know, understand where they're coming from. You know, who's their family? Who do they care about? How do they spend their time? What drives them? What motivates them? What are they scared of? Um, and investing that time, seeing someone as a full person, which I think empathy is a key to unlocking that, that then gives us the ability to lead with love. Mm, mm, I love it. All right. We bring it home with two questions as we do with every guest. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like us to know? Mm, For me, it's that we're facing such deep systemic and challenging problems in communities at the nation level, even at the world level, things like the climate catastrophe. And what worries me is that these are problems that will not be solved by any one person, any one single approach. And I see our ability as people, as communities to collaborate is getting worse and worse and worse. So at this moment where we need to be collaborating to be working together, to be trusting each other more than ever, I see that starting to fray. And that's something that scares me quite a bit. (sighs) Yeah, well, that makes two of us, Alex. So finally, our guests close us out with a key takeaway from our discussion or a closing remark to keep us inspired. Well, I'll end this conversation the same way I end my class at UC Berkeley. The final slide I put up is the world has never been more ready for you. And that's my fundamental belief is that there's never been a better or more important time than right now to lead positive change. You may be listening to this and you may feel inspired, but don't know exactly what it is. That's okay. You may see the world and feel frustrated. That's okay. But what we do need you is to step up to choose in this moment 
to be a change maker, to give yourself that permission to say, yes, I can make a difference and to go do something about this. I'm not saying it's easy, but I will tell you, there's never been a better or more important time than right now. And the world is ready for you. And I can't wait to see what you do next. So inspiring, man. Alex, uh, send our listeners to a few places that you would like uh, for them to connect with you, maybe your website or LinkedIn. You would love to connect on LinkedIn. That's the main social network that I use. I'll find myself under Alex Budak on LinkedIn. Let's connect there. I share lots of changemaker ideas, resources, and concepts there. And then if you're curious to check out the book, uh, changemakerbook.com. And it's, of course, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and local retailers as well. It's been an amazing conversation. And I want to thank you for guiding us on this journey of becoming a changemaker. And we're all much better for it, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. I had such a good time, Marcel. Thanks for having me. Keep the conversation going on social media with hashtag Love in Action Podcast. And also look for my show notes on my website, marcelschwantis.com. I'm going to leave all of Alex's info there, his websites, LinkedIn and all that. And you can also find our, our YouTube video to this conversation there as well. And finally, if you'd like to sponsor the show to help spread the Love in Action movement globally, again, you can reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.